there, I'm Andrea Koppel, and it's time for coffee, the podcast where you get to hear firsthand what the jobs and careers that interest you the most are really like. Hey there, Java junkies. Welcome to another episode of Time for Coffee. I hope that your work is going smoothly and and that you are just firing on all pistons. And of course, I hope you are enjoying some kind of caffeinated beverage because it is time for another caffeinated career conversation. And my guest today, Sarah Hillware, is somebody that you are definitely going to be wanting to pay attention to. She is a social entrepreneur and a global communication strategist who serves as a consultant right now at the World Bank. She has spent her career designing, implementing, and managing effective public affairs and behavior change campaigns, which we're going to get into so that you can better understand what all of that means. Sarah, welcome to Time for Coffee. Are you caffeinated and ready to go? Yes, I am. Thanks so much for having me. Awesome. Are you a uh, a Java lover? <laughs> yes, actually, I have my mocha, my mocha um, with almond milk. Ooh, um, <laughs> I'm an almond milk gal too. I'm, I'm actually drinking just a regular almond milk latte. Oh, very nice. So Sarah, you are a global communication strategist who has been consulting now at the World Bank for the last almost two and a half years. Yeah, it's coming up on three. I can't believe it. Holy cow. Can you take us inside the primary functions of your current job? Yes, absolutely. I've I've had the real great privilege to be able to work on a couple of global programs and also work on country programs. So being able to work with teams on programs that actually reach people and improve lives. So some of the functions of my job, right now I'm actually working on several reports. So two annual reports for the largest program that I work on, which is the Forest Carbon Partnership Facility. I mean, it's a $1.3 billion portfolio that actually prepares countries through policy, through technical assistance is is what we call it, to be able to uh, work their way up to, to being able to have carbon credits. So We do that through improving land use policies and agriculture policies and really working with indigenous peoples, working with women, working with civil society organizations to be able to do that. So right now I am working with various teams in each of those countries in the portfolio. So it's about 47 countries. Wow, that's a lot. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, for, for that little program. And so I'm coordinating with teams across the globe to gather data on all the activities that they've done over this last year that have helped these countries to prepare. We call it RED+. Plus. That's an acronym that essentially describes deforestation and afforestation, forestry and land use policies within developing countries. We are trying to connect land use and, and agriculture to mitigation of emissions, which actually contributes to climate change. My day can look quite different depending on what I'm working on. As I mentioned now, working in those annual reports to find out what each of these countries have done in terms of stakeholder engagement, in terms of their various policy initiatives, building coalitions amongst ministries within various countries, what we've done in terms of private sector engagement, in terms of engaging indigenous communities and women, and then turning those into digestible stories for the different donor countries. So those are developed nations who actually contribute to this big facility, this trust fund 
and they fund all of those activities for each of these countries every year. So being able to tell them where their dollars went and what the impact of that funding was. What is a typical day? Can you take us or, or just a day in the life of Sarah Hill where what is it that you're doing to gather this information in this case to get those reports ready to be released? You've got to go through what we call country progress reports. And so those can range anywhere from, you know, 20 to 30 pages of data that different task teams, what we call them, the World Bank task teams on the ground, they're using to report their activities and their, their various indicators that tell us, you know, which achievements were carried out, sending a lot of emails, getting on a lot of phone calls to be able to make sure that all of that is, is in the right place and that people are getting them to me at, at the right time so that I can begin then going through that and analyzing and synthesizing and turning that again, it, turning that into stories. But then I also do quite a few other things that are kind of part of the day to day. So it's really kind of seasonal. I mean, what are the big deliverables that I'm working on within that month or within that quarter? And so this morning, actually, for example, I had an amazing call with the first ever joint secretary of the Ministry of Forestry in Nepal. She was the first ever woman joint secretary of the Ministry of Forestry in Nepal. And it was just incredible talking to her and learning about some of the policies that she's put in place to make sure that women are represented at all levels, from the community level to the all the way up to governance, and also some of the personal struggles that she's faced. From my conversation with her, I'm going to take that and turn it into a story that tells the impact of what our funding is actually doing for women in this sector to empower women to create livelihoods in that sector, right? So yes, sometimes I'm talking to joint secretaries or sometimes I'm talking to teams who are implementing projects on the ground or sometimes I'm talking to donors who are providing the funding for the work that we're doing and making sure that they have what they need to be able to continue that support. So it really depends on the season, right? Sometimes I'm putting together consultations and, and workshops, further programs, or implement new aspects of a larger program. So it really just depends on what I'm working on at the time. Sarah, I wanted to just a segue over to the other part of your portfolio as a social entrepreneur and talk about the nonprofit that you founded back in 2012 called Girls Health Ed. What was it that inspired you to found a nonprofit? I had done research on adolescent girls' health education, and I was really interested in how puberty actually impacted girls' ability to finish school. I knew the experiences I had had growing up, even in the United States, and then studying global health. I was just really interested to find out what other girls around the world had faced during that time and were facing when it came to puberty. When I did my thesis, at first, I was just really interested in the kind of self-esteem impacts, right? Researchers that actually call what girls experience right around the time they hit puberty, which is like around eight or nine, they experience what we call a loss of voice, which essentially means that they stop participating in sports they love. They fall behind in their studies sometimes. They stop raising their hand. They stop kind of approaching other kids, particularly boys. So I was just really interested to find out the intersection of gender and puberty and in health and education. Out of this study that I did, I actually did some research and I did research in two areas in the U.S. So one more rural area, one more urban, and then also in Kenya and in India. What I was really trying to find out was, were there any commonalities among what girls and young women were experiencing who were in very different settings? 
And the answer to that short answer was yes. There are actually five key things that I found were issues for girls around this time. And that was one of those things were menstruation. Another one of those things was the personal care and hygiene surrounding that. Another one was body image. Girls were kind of really kind of experiencing just this discomfort with their body changing. And sometimes there's a lot of bullying around that because one girl's body would look differently and another girl's body would look another way. And then uh, there's also nutrition as well. Girls really understanding how to take care and nourish their bodies during these times so that they actually had the proper physical balance to be able to, to carry out a lot of the activities that they were engaging in and being able to lead a healthy life. So I did this research and what I found is that it actually impacted, puberty impacted girls' ability to stay in school, which in turn impacted their families and that impacted their communities and it impacted their social standing and their economic outcomes throughout their lives. And so that really bothered me and stuck with me. And I actually ended up getting a small research grant to do a pilot. And I did a pilot in, in DC in a low-income area and was working with girls and developed along with some other friends of mine who were physicians and educators. I developed a curriculum that addressed these various issues that I talked about, nutrition, body image, personal care, hygiene, and reproductive health as well, making sure that girls understood STDs and STIs and pregnancy and all of those things that came along with puberty. And what we found is that it actually improved girls' confidence. They were raising their hands more. They were much better able to manage menstruation and they felt like they were much more confident about going from being a girl to a woman. They felt more comfortable engaging with the opposite sex and talking to their parents about these topics. And so overall, it really had a real impact on how they moved in the world and how they saw themselves. And that inspired me to continue this work. So even after I graduated and I was done with my thesis and all of that and the research pilot, I said, wow, I can't just drop this, right? I really want to make sure that this is something that, that I continue. One of the things that I did was I shopped around and I said, okay, well, I have this curriculum and I have these pilot results. What can I do with that? And I was trying to figure out what's the best way and most impactful way to get this out to as many girls as possible. The answer that I came up with was to become a nonprofit and to be able to have the flexibility to, to implement these programs in an after-school setting. So ended up doing that, ended up forming a board, I'm getting a 501c3, continuing to improve upon the curriculum. Now we talk about consent and we talk about sexuality, talk about so many different things that impact girls' lives and confidence and educational outcomes. Fast forward, we've now trained about 60 plus teaching fellows. We have a team of about 12. When you include everyone from our staff to interns to board members who are also helping in an operational way. And then we also have impacted about 2,000 girls to date, both here in the U.S., throughout D.C., New York, Los Angeles. Now we're doing a pilot in New Orleans, potentially Atlanta, and we have programs abroad. So we've, we've worked in a few areas in Kenya as well. It's still ongoing and we're really excited about the future. We've been around six years. So Sarah, what is the problem that Girls Health Ed, the nonprofit that you started, looking to fix? And how are you doing it? I touched on it a little bit before. And that is, we're trying to close the gap for comprehensive health education. So right now, there are only 13 states, even in the United States, which a lot of people have trouble believing, there are only 13 states that mandate health education to be medically accurate. And so that means that there... Excuse me, what do you mean medically accurate? 
That means that a school can have a health education program that is just, as I said, not medically accurate. So myths can be taught. We are, we can tell kids that if they have sex, their hand will fall off. I mean, it doesn't have to be medically accurate. There are no standards. Um, (laughs) so that's a problem, right? And so what we see as a result of that is that kids are not, they're not exposed to the right information and they are suffering for that. There are a lot of kids who they don't know how to use a condom. They don't, they don't know what contraception is out there and available to them. They have no idea what's happening when they get their first period. They don't know what consent means. And so this is, these are very, very tough things, but things that If a girl is not armed with the information, specifically girls, because they're, as research shows, they're the ones who really bear the brunt of this this lack of information. And so as a result, I mean, they are dropping out of school. They're falling behind in school because they're becoming pregnant or because they are, for example, in Kenya, girls who have their period, oftentimes they're bullied in in classrooms because they, they weren't taught about how to use sanitary products and they don't have access to sanitary products. And so they, what do they do? They stay home one week out of the month and, and all that time adds up and they miss so much school that they end up dropping out. So there, there are a lot of barriers that girls face once they enter puberty. I haven't even touched on all of them, but those are just, those are just a couple of the ones that really stand out and really, really kind of impact a girl's standing in the world um, sure. and also the way that she sees herself. Sarah, I want to flash back to your time in school when you went to George Washington University's Elliott School of International Affairs and got your BA in International Affairs and Global Public Health. Why did you pick that to study and did you know what you were going to do when you graduated? I actually went into undergrad thinking I wanted to be a doctor. <laughs> okay. uh, so I was, I was on the track to go to med school. So I was pre-med. I thought I wanted to study biology and become a physician. At the end of my sophomore year, before I entered my junior year, I had the opportunity to go to Ecuador. And there, we actually provided health education workshops and HPV screenings for women because cervical cancer is the number two killer of women in Ecuador. Every day we went to a different indigenous community outside of Quito and we put on these workshops. We worked local physicians there and we provided these screenings. We also provided things like infrastructure, like toilets and built stairs, for example, because pregnant women were falling down the stairs and having miscarriages, which caused all kinds mm. of issues. Yeah. So that really opened up my mind and made me realize that the problems that I wanted to solve were by and large outside of the clinic. I came back to Washington, D.C., and I changed my major, transferred into the Elliott School and had a concentration in global public health, which was great because I got to study international affairs. And I also got to take a lot of courses in the public health school, which was amazing. And so, so yeah, I was inspired by that trip that I had taken in Ecuador. And I'd also had some experiences working in low-income areas in D.C. through Children's Hospital that also made me realize that really around the world, a lot of people were experiencing health issues because of things that were happening outside of the doctor's office. Sarah, you mentioned that you got that job, that opportunity through networking. And I know that you've actually written a blog post about three ways (laughs) to make networking work for you. Could you just very briefly (laughs) share with our Java junkies what they are? Yeah, absolutely. So 
my gosh, this was how many years ago now? I have to remember what I said in the blog. One takeaway that I will say is important is practicing authentic networking. But that means opening yourself up to new opportunities, but also adding value to someone else as well. So networking isn't just about what you can get from someone. It's also about what you can give to someone. So if you're having a coffee with somebody or you're grabbing a drink with someone and you're really kind of only thinking about you, that's really not the way to go because that won't incentivize the person to want to help you. So as I mentioned, I had a friend who had just gotten hired and she was under a lot of pressure to produce this big report and to make sure that these big campaigns were successful. And so I asked her, how can I help? Right. And that's really what got me the opportunity is being open to helping someone else, which in turn helped me. And also taking the initiative to ask. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And so having those conversations and being authentic about what it is that that you want and maybe how that person can help you, but in a way that's humble, right? Sometimes I find that People will come, they'll have coffee with me and and they'll ask me straight away for a job or they'll ask me straight away about job opportunities. That's not the way that I do things. I just find that sometimes that can be a little bit of a turnoff for some people. Sarah, if you would, could you share a story with the Java community about a time for you in your professional life when you had to really dig deep to keep going? I don't know whether you had, if it was a challenging supervisor or boss or or whether it was you started a job that is the case for so many of us was a huge job and you felt like you didn't necessarily have the relationships or necessary skill sets to do it as well as you would like in the beginning. But whatever it was, how you managed to get to the other side of that experience? I really have a lot of stories I could tell where (laughs) I was lost or down or felt discouraged. But I think those those experiences make us who we are and they make us better people. But I think one that may be really applicable to your listeners is that so when I left the World Food Program, I had applied for a full-time position because that in that role, I was working part-time. But I had applied for a full-time position and I didn't get it. And I was really kind of discouraged because I really loved what I was doing and I really loved the team I was working on. There was someone else who was just a better fit than I was. And I was just kind of sad about that. I felt like I had been working there for, for a little bit of time and I thought that I really could do the job and I was, I was rejected. And so what I ended up doing was continuing to work there part-time and then applying for other things outside of that organization. So I, I ended up getting a contract position at another UN agency, the UN High Commissioner for Refugees, UNHCR. And I ended up working there in a different department. I actually worked in development and fundraising. And so a lot of donor communication, which is very interesting to me. And working there was, for me, a really great learning experience, but was just really feeling discouraged that I didn't get to work on some of the things that I thought I'd be working on after graduation, which was much more working on the program side of things, working directly with governments or with people. It's like, okay, kind of like working with the people who are funding this, but I'm not working with the actual beneficiaries, the actual developing countries, the actual people. So that was really a turning point for me. I ended up then leaving that job and I ended up working in the private sector for about a year, which really opened opened my eyes to what kind of things I, I wanted to be working on. There was quite a period of me not just not really being happy, not not really feeling like I had made the right choice in terms of what I had studied and majored in and what I had done up to that point. 
But then I kind of pressed the reset button and I kept my mind open and I worked in the private sector, which I, I hadn't imagined myself doing. I gained really valuable skills, you know, mm-hmm. with, with regard to advertising and I'd work with local governments and created, you know, campaigns for them. And I, and I kind of built my niche working with local governments and NGOs. And that really helped me tell my story when I was being hired to launch a communications and stakeholder engagement plan for a new program at the World Bank. I would just say to your listeners, I mean, don't close your mind. Don't get discouraged. Don't give up right away. Because just because you don't love your first or second or third job, that doesn't mean that you made the wrong choice. Sometimes it just means that you need to gain different skills or that you need to take a step back or that you need to rethink your strategy. You need to give yourself some time. I am with you. I call my own journey sort of like Goldilocks and the Three Bears. I was trying different (laughs) bowls of porridge and it took me a few tries before I found the right temperature. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) exactly. Exactly. You and I have something in common there. (laughs) We sure do. (laughs) Sarah, if you could go back to GW and do college all over again, based on the wisdom that you have today, what advice would you give yourself? I kind of reject the notion of having a ton of regrets and wishing that I had done something differently. I think I did everything that I thought I could do at the time, and I wouldn't change a thing. I would say that every year I had a position on campus and an internship, and every summer I had an internship. I would say that's super important. I think in terms of what I would have done differently, I may have focused a little bit more on my extracurricular activities. So like student organizations and things like that, focus those a little bit more on what I wanted to do after college. Because the first couple of years, I felt like I was probably doing a little bit too much, that kind of screwing up my focus a little bit. And and then the last couple of years, that organization that I actually ran on campus that allowed me to go to Ecuador, that helped me in my career. And then also working with another organization that allowed me to do human and social work through Children's Hospital, I ended up really using that, leveraging that to help me get jobs. So I would say I maybe if there was anything I could have done differently, I would have started doing those kinds of things a little bit sooner. Great advice. Sarah Hillware, I cannot thank you enough for making time for coffee today with me and the Java Junkie community. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you so much, Andrea. So did I. And I hope that some of the things I said were helpful to your listeners. Thanks so much for listening to Time for Coffee, where the professionals in the jobs that most interest you always have time to grab coffee 24-7, no matter where you live. I have one quick favor to ask you. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to Time for Coffee. Thanks so much.